Well, good morning once again. Today, we're going to continue talking about what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And I'm just going to warn you that some of what I shared today, it might, kind of, it might feel like I'm going a little fast, that you're sort of drinking from a, a fire hydrant, but this sermon is, is really an overview of something that we are going to be spending the next number of weeks, maybe even months on. And so I, I just want to do some visioning and give y'all an idea and some glimpses of where we're going. But before we dive into that, I want to offer a reminder as to what the mission of our local Edmond Seventh-day Adventist Church is. But our mission is to know Jesus, reflect his character, and share his message. Thank you, Misha. To know Jesus, reflect his character, and share his message. And so if you ever forget this, all you have to do is look to the back of your bulletin. And so we're going to break this down today and over the next few weeks. We're going to delve even deeper into each part of this mission. But first, let's talk about what it means to practice. What it means to practice. I believe the starting point with any sort of practice is this. It's not about trying, it's about training. It's not about trying, it's about training. So let's say that you're out of shape, overweight, and lacking any sort of cardio fitness, but you decided that you want to run a marathon. <laughs> I like the laughter. <laughs> How do you get this accomplished? How do you accomplish this? Do you, do you wake up tomorrow morning and run 26.2 miles? No. No. What, what would happen if you tried that? And, and maybe you, you tried really, really hard. What would happen? There it is. You would die. You might make it a mile. You might make it two. Maybe you'd even, by faith, make it five. But eventually, you would keel over. <laughs> you have to walk before you run. You have to run pieces before running the whole. You don't try to do the whole thing. You train to do the whole thing. Oh, yes, there we go. Amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus. All right, now we're all on the same page. <laughs> Dear friends, this little illustration, this funny illustration of the marathon running, just, just take it, put it in your pocket. We're going to come back to it later. Put it in your pocket for now. There is resolution. Now, turning our focus back to Jesus, people referred to Jesus as many different things during his earthly ministry. But if you were a first century Jew and Jesus showed up into your local synagogue and started preaching on Sabbath morning, you would most likely refer to him as rabbi. As rabbi. Did we lose it again? <laughs> rabbi. A rabbi was a teacher who would travel from town to town with his quote-unquote yoke. 
a first century euphemism for his set of teachings or way of reading the Torah, the first five books of what we now call the Bible. This is who Jesus was. This context has a lot of implications for a question that we've been asking lately. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Now, let's not look at this just as uh, this term of being a follower of Jesus as a mere title or or some sort of cliche that we say, but let's dig dig down and and get to the, the root of this thing, understand the root of this thing. Beginning in Mark 1, there are a handful of scriptures that can aid us in this quest. Mark 1, verses 16 through 18, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets, and immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Moving on into chapter two of Mark, verses 13 through 15. He went out again beside the sea, And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Then in chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also called apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Then again in chapter 8, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So, I I want you to notice that this invitation, unlike the way it was done in the ancient Jewish education system, which we'll, we'll get into that here in a second, this invitation from Jesus is available to anyone, to anyone. It doesn't matter where you come from or where you don't come from, what you've done or you haven't done, whether you are rich or poor, male or female, hardworking or lazy, Jesus says that you are invited to follow him. Okay, you've got it up partially up there. (laughs) We're going to roll with it. I think you can fill in the blanks, whatever's happening. But you notice he says, if anyone would come after me, and then he said, for whoever. Did you also notice a pattern in those verses that I read? 
the call of Jesus was not, hey, y'all, believe in me so that you can get your ticket to heaven when you die. Did you notice that's not what Jesus said? It was, follow me. Come, be my disciples. As I've said numerous times before, Jesus is not just worried about our future life and eternity. He also cares about our life here and now. This is seen most clearly in his invitation to experience the abundant life. Now, let's talk about this word, disciple. It comes from the Hebrew word talmid and the Greek word mathetes. Mathetes. It can also be translated as follower, student, pupil, or my personal favorite, apprentice. Apprentice. A note of distinction. Jesus was not the first person or the last to have disciples. He wasn't the first or the last. This was a common term in practice, and not just there in the Jewish world, but also a few hundred years before in Greece. But oftentimes, in the 21st century church, when we talk about disciples or apprentices, we, we pull it from its first century context. So let's just take a few moments and dip our toes into some history to understand this topic better. In the first century, discipleship was the pinnacle of the Jewish education system. And in this education system, there were three levels. The first one was called Beit Sefer, Beit Sefer, otherwise known as the house of the book. And this is where children were taught how to read and to write and to do basic math, but all of it was from the context of the book, a.k.a. the Torah. And on top of that basic learning, children were also taught to memorize most, if not all, of the Torah. Can you imagine memorizing Genesis through Deuteronomy before the age of 12? Genesis through Deuteronomy before the age of 12. Upon completion, if you were a female, then you go and you get married and you bear children. If you were a male, you'd apprentice with your father in whatever the family business was. But the best of the best of the males moved on to the second level of education, which was called Beit Talmud, or the house of learning. They would study and memorize most, if not all, of what we now refer to as the Old Testament. The entire Old Testament. And once that was finished, most would be done with their education, but a small few, a select few, the, the Rhodes Scholars, the geniuses, the elite would go on to be a disciple or an apprentice of a rabbi in what was called Beit Midrash, Beit Midrash, or the house of study. Again, I, I must stress how difficult this was to get into. If you were being considered, you'd sit with a rabbi and he would just grill you with question after question, not just about the scriptures, but also 
concerning the particular interpretations of Scripture by well-known rabbis at the time and before. And you'd just be grilled on that. You'd be interrogated for days and weeks on end. And then, and only then, if this rabbi felt that you had the smarts, the drive, the work ethic, the wisdom, and the talent to one day become a disciple yourself, then he would turn to you and he would say something like this. Come, follow me. Or come, be my disciple. Now the odds were not in your favor. But let's just imagine that this has happened to you. And once you become an apprentice, you would have three main goals. Three main goals. First, to be with your rabbi. To be with your rabbi. Think about what we read a few minutes ago. Jesus appointed the 12 so that they might be with him. Being a disciple was 24-7. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It wasn't just like you go to work or class Monday through Friday and maybe you're doing that for eight to 10 hours and then you get the weekend off. You would follow your rabbi around all day, every day. You would eat with him. You would would sleep by his side. You would sit in on every conversation that he had. Well, this is an adventure, isn't it, (laughs) y'all? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep trying as we go and keep trying to, to pull y'all into it. But um, yeah, so you, you would always be with your rabbi and you would follow him so close on unpaved and dirt roads that by the end of the day, there would be physical evidence of your closeness to the rabbi. There was a Hebrew blessing that went like this. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And so if you were one of these disciples, maybe you wake up in the morning and you look at your fellow disciples and you say, let's go get dusty today. That'd be your first goal, to be with your rabbi. Your second goal would be to become like your rabbi, to become like your rabbi. Remember that line Jesus said to Peter, James, and the others, I will make you fishers of men. Now, this wasn't just a cheesy pun. Fishers of men was a well-known, at the time, Hebrew idiom for a great teacher. So Jesus is essentially saying, Peter, you are a good fisherman, but if you come with me, I will make you into a great teacher. You'd literally follow your rabbi around, copy everything he did, the way he moved, the tone of his voice, the way he dressed, you, you would act out his mannerisms. You wanted to be him. Now, I, I know that this flies in the face of the world's culture today, right? Everyone, we, we all want to be different. We all want to be unique. We all want to stand out. But in the first century, disciples wanted nothing more than to be a carbon copy of their master. So as a disciple or apprentice, you'd want to be with your rabbi. You'd want to become like your rabbi. And then third, you'd want to do what your rabbi did. And remember, we read in Mark 3 that Jesus' goal with the 12 was, quote, to send them out to preach 
and have authority to cast out demons, which is exactly the kind of stuff that we saw Jesus doing throughout his ministry. So the end goal for any rabbi was that after a few years of training, he could then look at his disciples and say, now go and make disciples. Okay, history lesson over. Let's now move this from the first century to the 21st century, from ancient Israel into modern Oklahoma City. To follow Jesus is to apprentice under him as our rabbi. That means we order our life around the same three goals that we just covered. And it's not on the screen, but you got your bulletin. Flip over your bulletin, look at this, this little darkened area here, and notice how well our local church's mission fits with what I just covered. To be with Jesus is to know Jesus. To become like Jesus is to reflect his character. And to do what Jesus did is to share his message, which included his actions and his teachings. So let's briefly break these down. Though again, we will be spending much more time in each of these over the next few weeks. But we begin by getting to know Jesus. I'm gonna try to connect one more time. Okay, there we go. Now y'all can see. So since Jesus is no longer walking around this earth physically, we connect with him through his spirit, right? Through the spirit of Christ. I mean, Jesus even said that to his disciples. It is good that I go away because if I do, then I can send my spirit. I've been with you, beside you, in front of you, behind you, but with the spirit, I will be in you. So this is how we get to know Jesus, Our goal is to get to the point where we live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Spirit. That's the goal. That's the baseline, though, too. That's the starting point. If you're here and you're wondering where to begin in your apprenticeship to Jesus, it's right here. It's right with that. Constant state of awareness of and connection to the Spirit. Now, learning how to live in this constant state of awareness and connection, it takes some practice. And we we talked about this last week in John 15. Jesus' metaphor about how to be with the Spirit is that of a branch abiding or remaining connected to the vine. And in that case, the true vine, Jesus. This quote from the late Dallas Willard, I believe, is helpful on this point. The first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. He's so, he's so graceful with that. I, I believe what he means is that, that the, the millions of constant things in this modern world that distract us, that vie for our attention. 
but these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. Now, we, we have straight from Scripture the truth that God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we're not talking about God leaves us and then we have to do things in order to bring him back. No, God is there, but our awareness of him being there is that's where the issue comes in. So I, I believe his point here is that living all day in constant awareness of and connection to the Spirit, it takes practice. It takes practice. Whether we want to admit it or not, we all have habits that we partake in every single day. Every single day. We are being formed every day, either by the world or by the Spirit. We're being formed every day. Yet God has given us the free will, the choice to choose which habits we are going to partake in. That's what the practices of Jesus are for. The things such as Bible study, prayer, solitude, Sabbath, fasting, etc., etc. These are time tested methods or practices to abide or remain in Christ. We wonder sometimes when we look at Jesus and all the, the horrible things that he faced, all the distractions, the constant people vying for his attention, and we, we, we wonder, how did Jesus deal with things in such a godly, loving way? It's because he made time for the Father. He snuck away to spend time in prayer. He spent time in solitude. He had many, many followers, but he spent most time with just 12. And even then, there were the inner three. He knew his limits. These are the things that Jesus did. These are the things that help us slow down to direct and redirect our hearts in our minds toward God. So as apprentices, this is our first goal, to be with, thus to know Jesus. The second goal is to become like Jesus, or in the words of our church's mission, to reflect his character, to reflect his character. From that place of, ab of abiding in the true vine, our goal is to become like our rabbi, Jesus. We are daily walking under the easy yoke of our teacher and master. And again, as I mentioned a few moments ago, it's not a question of whether we are being molded and formed, but it's the question of who or what we are being molded and formed into. As you look ahead into the future of your current trajectory, who or what are you becoming? Just something to consider. Amen, brother. I don't know about you, 
but I want to continue growing into the kind of person who is like Jesus from the inside out, from the inside out. And and I don't just want behavior modification, though I'll take it, but I want transformation from the inside out. I want to be the kind of person who finds it far easier to love, listen, and care for my enemy than it is to hate, gossip about, and harm them. I want to be the kind of person who finds it easy to trust God as opposed to living stressed out, anxious, and worried about the difficulties that I face in life. And like, we face difficulties, right? (laughs) The New Testament authors call this transformation. And I believe by faith that it is mine in Christ. It is yours in Christ. But that faith leads to practice. It leads to habit. And it won't just happen in a moment or in a year, or two, or five. (laughs) We partner with God, and this, this is the part that often gets left out nowadays in our individual American culture and mindset. We partner with God and our spiritual community to become the man or woman that God created us anew to be. We died to the old self, right? The old person that we used to be, the slave to sin, and we were reborn. But when a baby is born, they still have growing and learning to do, right? We grow in God, and we grow with our community. So first, it's to know Jesus, then to reflect his character, and thirdly, It's to do what he did, or as we've put it in our mission, to share his message. The whole point of apprenticeship was to carry on your master's work. Now, here's the distinction with Jesus, though. (laughs) He wasn't just a rabbi, right? He was also the son of God. He was also the Messiah. So yes, Jesus taught He taught scripture. He taught people about his father. But he also helped to usher in a new kingdom. And so our goal as an apprentice isn't just to know a lot about the Bible, not just to know a lot about God, but it's to actually become a part of this ushering in that Jesus was a part of in his earthly ministry. I like how John Mark Comer breaks down Jesus's kingdom into 10 categories preaching the gospel, teaching the way, healing the sick, casting out demons, eating and drinking with people who were far from God, doing justice, peacemaking, praying, prophesying, and standing up against religious and political corruption. Now, as apprentices to Jesus, we should expect to be able to do those things. Maybe not on day one, Maybe not in year one, but eventually with the guiding and the molding and the shaping of the spirit, we are being shaped to carry out 
Jesus's work. To continue to pick up where he left off, Jesus himself said, and I know sometimes this is hard for us to believe, but he said, you who come after me, you who follow me, believe in me, will do greater works than me. We are to become ambassadors of his message of reconciliation as Paul breaks down in the latter part of 2 Corinthians chapter five. So being a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus means knowing him, reflecting his character, and sharing his message. And this works best when a disciple of Jesus isn't just like a hobby for you. Something you turn off and turn on something you turn toward and away from depending upon the day of the week or the time of day. It's designed to work best when a disciple of Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, is the whole point of your life. Now, that doesn't mean that you need to quit your job and become a pastor or work for the church or work for some nonprofit organization. No, Jesus is calling you to be his disciple as a teacher, as a nurse, as an office worker, as a full-time parent, as a plumber, as a stay-at-home mom, as a retiree, as a student, etc., etc. But it does mean that the main focus of your life is apprenticeship to Jesus. And this is the kind of life that you are invited to, not just by me, but by Jesus himself. Come and follow me. Remember back to that verse I shared in Mark 8, and notice that the call from Jesus was to become a disciple, not a Christian. The word, of, the word Christian It's used three times in the New Testament. The word disciple is used 269 times. What's the difference between being a Christian and being a disciple? Now, some of this is semantics, but there's more to it, right, Ron? (laughs) Some of this is semantics, yes. But for many people in the United States, Being a Christian means that you are simply part of a religion called Christianity, and maybe you go to church a few times a year, and you're a semi-moral person. For most people, that's what it means to be a Christian. For a lot of people in the West, it's more about Jesus following you as a pick-me-up as opposed to you following Jesus. This can be seen most closely to home by the the consumer culture that is seeped into our churches. People come to church with the mindset of how will this church service bless me as opposed to, Lord, how can I be a blessing when I go to church? And many people church hop because they have a list of personal demands and preferences that simply aren't being met. Yet it's seen in a greater degree by a recent Gallup poll. Nationwide, 63% of adults self-identify as Christian. Yet a number of independent surveys put the percentage of people actually following the teachings of Jesus at a mere 4%. 
Now, I don't know how exactly this is gauged, but as I mentioned, numerous independent surveys have come up with a number like this, a number below 10%. So 63% are willing to check, I'm a Christian, but less than 10% are actually following the teachings of Christ, actually apprenticing under Jesus. And this would be a completely foreign concept for the disciples in Jesus' day. In the New Testament, there are only two groups of people talked about in the Gospels. There are the disciples and there are the crowds. There's no third category. There's no third category. But when you read the disciples, don't just think about the 12, right? Jesus made the distinction. Those were the apostles. Jesus had hundreds, if not thousands, of both men and female disciples all up and down Israel. And this type of description of the two groups was a literary device, an appeal used by the New Testament writers to ask the question, which group are you in? Which group are you in? Are you a face in the crowd? Were you a disciple of Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus? And isn't it astounding how 2,000 years later, this question is still just as piercing? Regardless of how you can answer this question, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're here. And I'm looking forward to us going on this journey toward true discipleship together. I believe the greatest issue facing the world today is whether those who merely identify as Christian will accept the invitation from Jesus to be a disciple. Apprentices who are willing to learn from him day by day what it looks like to live out the gospel into the darkest corners of this world. Jesus is inviting you to a special kind of life, the abundant life, what Jesus called life and life to the full. Do you feel like something is missing in your life? Do you feel like something is missing in your soul? I know I don't need to tell you this, but I'm going to anyways. The world has nothing to offer you, nothing to offer you. It's empty air. It will not fill you. It will not satiate you. Only Jesus can do that. And he doesn't say, pay for this thing and I'll give it to you. He says, come and follow me. My spirit will fill you. This kind of transformation from the inside out, where you love your friends and your enemies, where you respond in kindness to hate, where you put others first before your own needs, this kind of life doesn't just magically happen to you. It doesn't just happen because you want it. I want to be a millionaire. I can wish that all day. But there are things that have to be done in order to get to that goal, right? <laughs> Let me be clear here too. I'm not talking about salvation here. Salvation is ours by grace, through faith, because of what Jesus has already done. I'm not talking about eternal life. I'm talking about the abundant life. 
For Jesus, salvation is less about getting you into heaven and more about getting heaven into you. It's not just about him becoming like us. It's about us becoming like him. It's less of a transaction and more of a transformation. And it's not just about what he has done for us, but also what he has done, is doing, and will do in us as we apprentice under him. It's about being a person who is not only loved by God, but is also pervaded by the love of God. It's not just accepting the merit of his death, but also receiving the power of his resurrection. Jesus said, the kingdom is here. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus' central message was that the inbreaking kingdom is available now to all. To all. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, is the most important teachings of Jesus all gathered into one place. It is the manifesto on how to live as his apprentice. And notice, if you read through it, it's not idealistic, right? It's quite messy. It's very messy. Jesus assumes that you will sin and that people will sin against you. He assumes that you will get into an argument with somebody who you considered your friend and they will sue you and drag you into courts. He assumes that you will not only have friends, but that you will also have enemies. He assumes that you will lust after a man or a woman on the street and that you will want more stuff and more money than you will already have, etc., etc. He assumes the messy, ordinary stuff that we are tempted with every single day. Yet still, even in the midst of it, as you read this sermon, it's a pretty high bar, right? It's a pretty high bar. For instance, he says things like, do not worry. How y'all doing with that? (laughs) It's a high bar. But here's the thing. If you pay close attention, Jesus begins and ends the Sermon on the Mount with this idea of practice. Practice. Here's what Jesus says before he gets into all the commands, all the you have heard, but I say. This is what he said. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments that I'm about to tell and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does or practices them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, after he's given all the commands. This is what he says. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does or practices them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, amen. Because it was founded on the what? On the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do, does not practice them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So Jesus, he bookends the Sermon on the Mount, his manifesto of what it means to be a follower of Christ. He bookends it with this idea of practice. 
And he doesn't just do it here, but he does it all throughout the four gospels. Jesus assumes this way of living will take a lifetime of practice. It's not a hobby of randomly trying, but a lifetime of habitually practicing the way of Christ. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying go home, read the Sermon on the Mount this week, and then try really hard because you failed at it last week. That's not what I'm saying. And if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, you know that that does not work. Now, I hope you haven't completely forgotten about the marathon running illustration that I gave. Pull that out of your pocket. Pull that out of your pocket right now. Let's go back to that. It's not about trying, it's about training. Over a period of time, through practice and training, you get to the point where not easily, but consistently, you can run 24 miles. You can run 25 miles. You can run 26 miles. You become the kind of person who, even though it's not easy, it is well within your capacity to run 26.2 miles. How? Through practice. (laughs) Through practice. If you want to run a marathon, it takes practice. If you want to experience the abundant life that Christ offers, life with God all through the day. Not just when you come to church, not just when you have a quiet moment alone, but all through the day, you sense his presence, you believe it's there, you commune with him. It takes a lifetime of practice in community. In community. Life is hard, but with God, And following Jesus, life is unbelievable, beautiful, and fulfilling. And so I'll end with this. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Sit with that. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. These practices are not about earning God's favor, about earning God's love. It's putting forth the effort to receive and to believe that it is true every single day. So Jesus has made a call and he's extended an invitation to you and to me. And my hope and my prayer is that even if we haven't said it in the past, as we journey together, we will come to say yes to the invitation from Jesus when he says, follow me. Amen and amen. As we close, I'd like to offer you a practical way to apply something from today's message. So consider pulling out your phone, taking a picture of this week's secret place practice. Are you a disciple of Christ or a face in the crowd? Which would you like to be? (laughs) Amen. Jesus has extended the invitation to follow him regardless of any excuse you or the world may have for why you aren't worthy for that invitation. 
If there is anything in your life holding you back from accepting this call to be his disciple, to be his apprentice, give it over to God in prayer this week. Give it over, let it go, and place your faith in him. Before we have our closing prayer, I'm gonna invite David to come forward and stand at the foot of the steps as our elder in charge for today. And if, there, if there's anybody here that you have a, a special request or a special praise and you would like to share that, and come talk to either myself or Dave. We'd love to hear from you, pray with you, take that request, take that praise to the throne of grace. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. And maybe we didn't understand the fullness of those two little words, follow me. But I pray that after today, and I pray that as we continue on in this voyage, this journey together and with you, that we will understand how amazing, how astounding, how life-giving it is that Jesus regardless of who we are or where we came from, regardless of our skills or our knowledge, has extended the invitation, follow me. Lord, we don't want to just be Christians. We want to be disciples of Christ. We don't want this just to be a, a, a thing that we put on our Facebook profile, but we want it to be an inner transformation in our heart and our mind. And so, Lord, we believe that, that we can't work for it, we can't earn it, but we can receive it from you and we can walk in your ways. We can follow so closely that we get covered in the dust, the spirit of Christ. And we might not notice when the change happens, but day by day, we will be molded and formed into your image. And so, Lord, we give ourselves to you and we tell you, Lord, have your way, because we know it's good. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.